All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. All right, our number one asked question is revolving around force fetch. Whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water, or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird, let me help you help your dog. Bunch of different breeds, bunch of different personalities, start to finish, teaching you how to do it. Links in the description. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, baby. We've got a really cool episode coming up for you. It is beagle-related, rabbit hunting, beagle trials with our friend Bob Ford. Bob Ford is an author and a pastor that's basically made his whole life's mission to help people and write about rabbit hunting with his beagles and in his his adventures. Uh, so Bob Ford, beaglebard.com is where you can find all his books. Um, check out Beagle Tales. It's a good one. Um, you can find them on Amazon as well. But Bob Ford is joining us today, and I hope you enjoy. But first, do me a solid. There's a couple cool things that Lone Duck has brought to the table, right? We've got our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Link is in the description. Um, This is our community. This is where if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, and we've helped you with your dog, you can jump on there. It's like buying me and Kevin a beer and or different levels to get more personalized training help for you and your dog via me. So patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Link's in the description. Also, check out LoneDuckOutfitters.com. Grab you a hat, grab you a hoodie, whatever you're feeling fancy about. Um, we've got a bunch of cool gear on there to help support the show. Um, and then lastly, one the one or two most common questions I get is force fetch. We developed a force fetch course from start to finish, from hold all the way to taking it to the field where the dog won't drop the bird or bumper at your feet, won't drop it at the shoreline, delivers to hand. Nice, every single time, step-by-step process, bunch of different dogs, bunch of different personalities, me teaching you how I do it so that you can do it with your dog. And that is, link in the bio, it is www.loneduckforcefetch.podia.com. So check that out. 
please. We appreciate it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Next up is Purina, baby. From the duck blind to the holding blind. That 3020 fuels the truck of lone duck. Next up, Gunner Kennels. You know it. Man's best kennel. They have continuously upgraded, innovated the dog kennel world. Their newest product is a cold weather door. And basically, guys, this is a magnet, a heavy-duty magnet that lays over top of your current gunner kennel door that helps hold the heat in. So duck season's chilly. Wintertime is chilly. And so pairing this with their all-weather kit is going to maintain the dog's body temperature in the kennel, keep them comfortable in the cool temps, and you don't have to worry about it. Come summertime, you pull off the magnet, you pull off your all-weather kit, bam, you're good to go. So super easy, made in America, high quality. It's a new piece of gear that they came out to continuously be innovating their products. So thanks to Gunner for doing that. Next up, <clears throat> shoot or shoot, baby, that can't. I'm really fired up. This is my last hunting trip is uh, this upcoming weekend with Ethan and Kat from Standing Stone Kennels, our buddy Peter and LJ. I think LJ might not be there because he's had a baby, but either way, we're going to go shoot some bismuth at Geese in Nebraska for a couple days and have a ton of fun. So I'm pumped to be shooting that bismuth one more time this hunting season. Segway, beautiful segue into Standing Stone Kennels. Our good friends, Kat and Ethan, uh, are not only phenomenal dog trainers, powerful YouTube videographers, and, and helping everybody train their bird dogs, but they also have Standing Stone Supply. Um, this is their website where you can pretty much buy anything you need to train your dog. From bumpers to collars to their easy lead, their number one seller is their easy lead. So check that out, standingstonesupply.com. Next up, smoke them if you got them, baby. Uh, big old Kevin smoked him some summer sausage recently, and he brought it over today for lunch. And my goodness gracious, good golly, Miss Molly, smoked him if he got him. That summer sausage was a 10 out of 10. Um, I don't exactly know how he did it, but he got a recipe. It was from the deer he shot this season, and it was unbelievable, better than what you'd get at the store. So good on Kevin for using his Traeger grills. Smoke them if you got them. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They keep us in tune with you and you in tune with us. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Bob Ford. Bob, welcome to the show. Do me a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. In central Pennsylvania, lived in central or western Pennsylvania my entire life minus uh the three years I called the Babylonian exile years of my life that I uh lived in the flattest of flatlands in central Ohio when I went to seminary uh and I've been uh counting my time as a student pastor I've been a pastor since 1996 and uh I've owned Beagles since I was thirteen years old. And uh, you know, I I write for magazines about 
primarily beagles, but I write outdoor humor in general. And, uh, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of a hobby of mine, but, uh, you know, like a lot of freelance writers, you have, uh, a real vocation that you do every day. And, uh, mine is serving as a pastor. That's really cool. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Tell us about at 13, you know, 13 year old Bob getting his first beagle. What was that journey and how did it happen? And tell us about the the early days. I wanted the beagle. Uh, you know, I think even to this day, there are more beagle clubs in Pennsylvania than any other state. Uh, so, you know, lots of guys had a, a beagle in the yard and lots of guys would do that and have rabbit hunting, get together, run dogs in the off season. And I wanted one and this would have been 1985. Uh, I decided I wanted to get one and my father had them when he was younger. Uh, keep in mind, my dad was 45 when I was born, but when dad was in his twenties and thirties, he had beagles and then not so much after he, you know, didn't have anyone. He got married to my mom. And uh, so I wanted to get one. And, you know, we decided that I was allowed and we built a kennel in the backyard. And, you know, one of the things he was adamant about was if I was going to get a beagle, I had to pay for it. Because if I was willing to earn the $75 to pay for it, which is... <laughs> About what an AKC registered beagle pup went for back then, 75 bucks, 50 to 100 bucks. <clears throat> he said, if you want to get it, then you got to pay for it. And I had a, a paper route at the time, and I had had that for a couple of years, maybe. I know when I was 12 years old, that paper route had a contest that sent kids to Europe. So in uh, you know, 1983, the year that the Winter Olympics were in Sarajevo, we went there as well as Venice, a bunch of paper carriers. Ooh. And I believe, I believe I was making at the time 15 cents per paper. I only delivered the Erie Sunday Times. It was, uh, it was the, the more popular Sunday paper for the coupons where I lived. So there were, you know, no large. Sunday publications there, but you know, the Pittsburgh press would come up to where we lived. And so would, you know, the paper out of Erie. And, you know, I think it was 60 cents when I started delivering it. No way. For the paper. Yeah. 60 cents for the big thick Sunday newspaper, you know, and on Wednesdays they would stop by and deliver the guts, all the inserts and advertisements and coupons and the colored paper Sunday comics. And so that would all come on Wednesday. Then my bedroom was close to being right above the porch of the house. Saturday night at three or four in the morning or something, you would hear the newspapers land on the porch with a thud. And I'd get up and assemble those papers, put them together. You'd have to take the paper that just came Saturday night, open it up to the middle, shove all the inserts inside of it, close it down, and then put all of that inside of the Sunday comics. And uh, so I was making 15 cents per delivered newspaper on uh, Sunday mornings. And I bought all my first guns with that. My first shotgun, my first rifle, my second rifle was paid for with um, basically Christmas tips. I'd go, <laughs> I'd show up at the 
store with a pocket full of $1 bills and $5 bills. And that's how I bought, you know, all my early firearms for hunting. And it's also the money I used to buy my first Beagle. And my dad bought a half litter mate to the Beagle that I bought. And the one dad bought turned out to be a little bit better dog, but, uh, so yeah, he said, if you aren't willing to pay for your own dog, then you're not going to prove to me that you'll take care of it. What was that dog's name? My first dog was Duke. Cool. And dad's dog, Duke. Yeah, Duke. And dad's first dog was, or not his first dog, the dog he bought when I bought my first dog. He bought the half litter mate and she was named Princess. Very cool. Um, standard, what size were they? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm trying to remember. I had them both in a couple field trials back then, even though gun dog trials were not common then. It was mostly, uh, you know, the old traditional brace dogs, which would run 50 yards in 50 minutes. I mean, they kind of bred the hunt out of them, but I, it seems to my memory that Duke was 13 inch, uh, and Princess was a taller bitch. She was 15. She was like 14, 14 and a quarter inches or something. But the two general classes in beagles, uh, in terms of size, are 13 inch, which is no more than 13 inches, and as short as you want. And then your 15 inch class is anything over 13, but it can't be taller than 15. Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, describe, I guess I want you to get into a little, like the art of training a beagle and maybe how you've evolved since you were 13 to beagles that you train now. Yeah. And in a lot of regards, this is going to sound different than the bird dog world. Um, and not everybody agrees with me on this, but I, I think, you know, quite a few people would, uh, cause I didn't come up with this idea on my own. It's just sort of a general school of thought. I think for some of us, um, there isn't as much that you can do to make a beagle pup better, but there's a hell of a lot you can do to make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. I think there are a lot of parallels, you know, to, to the retrievers and upland bird dogs as well. So, you know, when you get a beagle pup started, it's all instinct, you know, and, you know, I always say that they find their voice and when they keep smelling rabbit tracks, keep smelling rabbit tracks, eventually they switch those off and they become a rabbit dog. And, They'll have a distinct bark that they make when tonguing a line and tracking a rabbit. It's the only time they make that bark. It isn't the same as the doorbell ringing. It's not the same uh, as they get hungry and they see you're eating a snack. It's just its own. I call it the rabbit voice. And, you know, they just start. Now, once they're started, there's a lot you can do to make them worse. Uh, One of the things is to put you know, they're still learning, so they don't necessarily run a full circle on a rabbit yet. Mm -hmm. And so some guys get disappointed. So what do they do? They take junior pup and put it down with their most seasoned gun dog 
so that the puppy doesn't lose the rabbit. But what happens at the same time? The puppy gets beat. It gets all this pressure. It's running with a dog that's so experienced. And the puppy learns bad habits. It learns to, and some guys do this with four, five, six dogs, and then the puppy. And so you get five, six dogs on the ground and a puppy running the back. And what happens sometimes? Uh, the pup never smells a rabbit track that doesn't have five or six other dogs over top of the rabbit first. And then people get surprised that the dog learns to dog track. That's right. Or you know what, so one question, not to get you off topic, but what I would feel being a dog person, but never have training a hound. My thought is there's pros and cons to it running with a adult. The pro would be maybe building a little bit of confidence, stretching them out a little bit. Um, but then you find that like it might take one or two sessions of that. But then that puppy might say, I don't really have to work because that dog's doing the work. I'll just follow along instead of getting its own voice, getting its own understanding and drive. Um, does that make sense? Like it makes them oh, late. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen it happen with, uh, you know, trained season dogs. You know, I had a, uh, <clears throat> you know, I have a dog named Duke. He's named after my first dog and he's what, 13 years old now. And when he was younger, um, he didn't run the front of the pack. But if there was a long check, meaning a place where the rabbit changed directions and the dog's got to figure out the trick, if there was a long check, Duke always got it. Mm. And I had a friend I was running with then, and he said, I can't run with your Duke dog anymore. I said, why? He said, because every time they get to a check, he said, that one dog of mine is standing around watching Duke because he knows he doesn't have to work for the check because Duke will get it. That's right. And that was a and that was a damn good dog that was doing that. Um, and so you can imagine how much more so with a puppy. Mm-hmm. And so typically what I do is I start the puppy with the oldest, slowest dog I have. And then once the pup uh, learns what it's doing and starts barking, um, I'll let that puppy down with that old dog as long as that pup is getting most of the work done, you know, the pup might get out there 50 60 yards ahead of the old timer and then if they lose it i'll let the old dog come up and solve it and then keep keep the pup on it um but i don't do that every time i take the pup out because it'll learn to stand around and wait that's right so how you know i i try to take the pup out so that it can beat the old dog some of the time or most of the time it can beat the old dog. Cause I don't put it with the seasoned vet. I put it, you know, I put it with the old dog that comes home and sleeps the rest of the day, you know? So, you know, because I don't think a puppy learns anything by being beat. Yeah. Yeah. I don't either. What, uh, what age are you doing this at? Uh, I'll take them out and, you know, here's where I've, changed a little from when I was 13 years old, you know, dad, dad would always have them out there by nine, 10 weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and that first princess dog we had started at 12 weeks of age. Um, 
But the Duke dog that we bought back then, yeah, he was 16, 18 weeks before he started. Um, but I, anymore, I don't get too excited till they're six months old or maybe five months. Mm-hmm. And I'm just out there, uh, just getting them to, you know, handle for me, just getting them to follow me around in the woods, uh, or, you know, kind of work in front of me. And, you know, I work on getting them to, uh, you know, uh, work semi close to me. I don't need them at my feet, but, you know, I'm not one of these guys that wants a beagle and there's guys that do, do, you know, and, you know, that's fine. That's, you know, their style of hunting. I don't want a dog that's 600 yards away looking for a rabbit. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, so I just kind of, you know, especially since, you know, where I live, I might be trespassing at that point, you know, um, if the dog, out that far and so uh i you know get them out young and i just kind of get them to you know hunt close to me and uh stay in the general area you you know learn how to walk on a leash after we're done and you know that sort of thing so probably five six months i start getting them out of the house and into the field and get them working you know the brush and you know used to being out there and sometimes they're not ready to start a rabbit then and you know they just play with a stick but <laughs> yeah you know that's okay too you know that's okay too sure what uh do you ever go to a penned in area where there are rabbits in it to put the puppies in yeah oh yeah uh i run in exactly. i don't think people that listen to our show will know what i'm talking about or some will but describe that whole deal Okay, so, and not every beagle club has a, a fence, but many do. I'd say most beagle clubs have a fence. And in Pennsylvania, the history of that is we used to have, not anymore, but we used to have a quiet season, meaning uh, from mid to late spring until the end of summer, you were not allowed to train dogs in the wild at all um because it was thought that it would kill babies you know you know these dogs were going to kill all the baby rabbits or the bird dogs were going to kill all the young chicks and so there was no dog training and it was that way when i was growing up um and so if you were going to train dogs in the state of pennsylvania you had to have two permits that you bought from the game commission one was an enclosure permit which allowed you to have an enclosure that you stalked rabbits in there then there was, I'm sorry, there were three permits. There was a permit to box trap rabbits that you could put into your enclosure. And then th- that also, that third permit allowed you to train beagles year round as long as you stayed within the confines of your club property. Cool. And so that's the history of it. And, you know, we hold field trials at, at our clubs and, you know, uh, you know, you might need, oh, I'm trying to think our last, um, field trial secretary at my club. I think last year there were four classes, 13 inch dogs, 15 inch dogs, 13 inch bitches, 15 inch bitches. Um, and you might need, and that's over two days. You might need to find 15 or 20 rabbits each day to run the trial. 
And as you can imagine, once the first couple packs run, the other rabbits will either go underground or get scarce or whatever. And so, you know, that's where we typically train dogs during the summer months and non non hunting times of the year. And uh, I always say it makes them look super in the wild because you get a professional Beagle Club rabbit that'll double on its own tracks. You get a professional Beagle Club rabbit um, that if there's a rocky area in your club, it'll run through there because it knows the scent is poor. Or if you've got a dirt road going into your clubhouse, they'll run 70 yards down that dirt road and then hop over and come back up 40 yards where it came and then hop off you get a dog that can run a tricky club rabbit they all look good in the wild if they can run that you know (laughs) that's really cool i never thought of that that the rabbits would get super sensitive and smart to it and come up with their own tricks yeah and i mean you get rabbits in the wild that get pretty tricky too but nothing like a club dog or a club rabbit that has been you know it gets chased every day how how big are these enclosures i've seen them as small as 35 acres and as big as 150 160 acres holy cow even 35 acres is not small i mean oh that's a small pen in the beagle world yeah, but someone's got to own that land and fence it in for one purpose. You know what I mean? Like it's, I feel like that's a pretty impressive feat, I would say. Yeah. The club, you know, you get, you, you know, have club members. And of course, the Beagle Club owns the land. We buy the fence, we maintain the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if I'm out just conditioning dogs, um, I walk around with a couple of pieces of fence that I can use this patch, carry a set of hog rings and a pair of hog ring pliers. And, you know, you put enough pressure on a rabbit, it's going to get out of that enclosure. It's never always a guaranteed hundred percent. So if you got holes in your fence, which can be caused by anything from groundhogs, which will chew a perfect circular hole in the break the middle of your fence, or you get deer jumping into the fence and, you know, you get a young, fawn and it kind of lands on the fence a little bit and pushes it down and you might have to pull that fence back up and everything so uh but yeah it takes a lot of it takes a lot of maintenance for the grounds uh cut and brush to make sure there's cover it doesn't matter how many rabbits you put in there if they don't have cover from the hawks and owls uh yeah it's a lot of work parties throughout the course of a given year I believe it. What does a beagle trial look like? I've never been to one. I've always wanted to go. If I showed up on a Saturday morning, what would I be in store for? How many people are there? How many dogs get to run? What is it like? So I, I'll just give you the common format where I live is SPO, which is small pack option. And uh, you you know, get all the entries. I'll take entries at my club. And then uh, you roll out your packs. Um, and then, you know, a first series pack has to have, what, four dogs minimum. And it can go up to seven um, or eight. And then 
and winners pack only, you can run nine. So let's say, oh, let's say you came to our club and we had for the little uh, 13 inch males, let's say we had uh, a 20, 24 dogs. And let's say, you know, we might roll them out in either four packs of six or six packs of four. Um, and not every pack has to have the same amount of dogs in it. You know, if you get an, you know, an odd number of dogs or whatever, you might have a couple packs that are a little bit larger than the smaller ones. So let's say we had, you know, six packs and the judges will follow all six packs or if they have to get in front of them to see what's going on, if the packs are too fast. And of course, rabbits naturally circle like anything else when it's chased. So they'll let these dogs circle. They'll judge them based on hunts and who's finding rabbits. They'll judge them based on who's solving the checks or the, you know, little tricks whenever the rabbits change directions. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, there's a whole bunch of desired traits and a whole bunch of faults. If the dog skirts around the brush or if it cheats to get to the front, if it stops barking on the rabbit to get an advantage to get to the front, there's all kinds of things that a beagle could do that's considered a fault. Okay. So let's say they get done with six packs let's say they're going to bring back oh maybe they want to bring back 18 so they roll out second series and those dogs are randomly assigned to a pack as well and sometimes there's a third series of packs there used to be a lot more when there were more entries and then in the end they go to the winner's pack and the winner's pack can have up to nine at least four um and you got to be measured before you go in there. So if you have a borderline dog that might be 13 or 15, you know, you take your chances or you can pre-measure, get into the, you know, you know, just to make sure you don't get excluded. But if you, you know, run a dog and it is too big, then you get kind of eliminated. You know, the judges might have liked you or not. Then you go to winner's pack and they start eliminating dogs. They can't end with less than, uh, you know, five dogs on the ground um, or four, but they can run it down to a brace if they want, down to two dogs. And, you know, when they're done, you find out if you play, you know, if you're on the ground when they're done and there's, you know, they give out awards, you know, first through fifth, you know, yeah. first through fourth. And, and then also NBQ, which, you know, doesn't give you any points towards a title or a championship or anything like that. But, you know, you get a green ribbon to throw in a box at your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get that too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so do, are there professional beagle trainers? Like I'm a professional retriever trainer that shows up with client dogs, or is it mainly an amateur sport where uh, a guy or gal will show up with their couple dogs of their own? Like what? What is that like? There are some handlers that will basically handle other people's dogs, and they basically live with the handler. The owners oftentimes don't even see these dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say the most successful folks I know in the sport uh, own a large kennel of their own, and they show up with seven, eight, 10, 12 dogs on any given day of the trial. Cool. And these, you know, most of the guys I know that are really good at it in the field are either 
retired but young enough to still chase dogs up and down the steep hills or self-employed and don't have to physically be at a job on weekends or during the week when they're training dogs, they got employees to do it for them. Gotcha. Or school teachers, are, <laughs> school teachers are really, uh, you know, often very good because they can retire younger than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Retire. That seems like a joke right now to me. Yeah. Well, I got a letter from security. I think my last letter from social security said I get my full social security at the age of 71. Hey, well, that's only 20 more years. That's only 20 <laughs> more years, man. Yeah. That's not so bad, right? There's an end goal. <laughs> that's cool. So how many beagles do you have right now? Six. Six. And what are their names and what are their titles? And like, what are, what are some cool characteristics of like your favorite ones of the six? Oh, I don't have any championship titles on mine. I'm a guy that shows up at a trial and sneaks away with a ribbon or two, uh, or sometimes, or I'm a guy that shows up and I make winner's pack. And when I get out of winner's pack, you know, they get it down to six dogs and they pick me up and then trials over, you know, but, uh, I can get into the winner's pack some, but I don't have any field champions. My old Duke dog has two wins. What does it take uh, to become a field champion? Three wins and 120 points. Three wins. And, and So is it like a point system? Like first place gets 10, second, eight, stuff like that? So let's say just for round numbers, let's say there's 20 dogs in a class. The winner gets 20 points. The oh. dog that finishes. The dog that finished second gets 10. The dog that finished third gets, what's a third of 20, uh, six and change. The dog that finished fourth uh, gets a quarter of that 20. Uh, and then NBQ gets no points. Got you. So it, it's all based on how big the class is. And it, 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 you know, And it used to be years ago, if you got your three wins, you were going to be a field champion because uh, that's how big the classes were. Wow. What do you think the reason being that the sport is not as big as it used to be, you know, and, and maybe when was the heyday? Uh, you know, I mentioned the brace beagles, which they slowed down, but back when the brace beagles were fast, when my dad first, had you know these brace dogs in the 1950s they had to judge them by horseback wow uh you you couldn't keep up with them 50s 60s i would say was you know one of the heydays and then around here where i'm at you know with the spo trials the heydays you know 80s 90s here after all of our brace clubs became gun dog clubs and i don't I somewhat think it parallels the general decline in hunting and fishing in general. Yeah. Um, I think I, you know, was reading, I wrote an article one time and less than 3% of America's overall population hunts at all. 
And most of them aren't guys like you and me running across the country to chase ducks or rabbits. Most of them are guys that hunt two days of rifle season for deer and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Deer hunting is the biggest of them all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the fine eagles and as far as hunting beagles and I think it just kind of parallels a lot of other trends where you see people not going out and doing hunting like they used to and uh you know that's just i think the nature of our culture now and uh you know what what do you think what do you think a main characteristic or the characteristics that you look for in a beagle to make it a great hunting companion and competitive dog I look for dogs that can find their own rabbit and circle it by themselves. Now you can get into a field trial setting where a dog that can run the front the whole time and never really solve any checks, but will feed off the front of some other dog solves the check. And when you get seven, eight dogs on the ground and sit cover, the judges don't always see the dog standing around waiting for another dog to solve the check. Right. Um, and so I've met a lot of really quick, hard-hitting dogs that can jump rabbits, but have trouble keeping the rabbit going. Uh, they need another dog there to solve the checks and keep things going. Um, but I, I think a dog has to be able to find its own rabbit. And I think a dog has to be uh, smart enough. And I say smart, so I'm not sure if it's brains or instincts, which is why I say you can't really this um have enough instincts to solve when the rabbit scent is gone to go back to where they last had it and figure out what direction it went and you see this a lot with dogs that can't do that they get so excited they go over the end and they never remember to go back where they last had the rabbit mm-hmm. um and that's the dog that I want that can always find when that rabbit turned, come back and find it. Cause otherwise, you know, you know, how do I shoot rabbits if they run it 200 yards and lose it? <laughs> right. What <laughs> and, about and, rabbits? And, and, sometimes, and oh. sometimes we ruin a puppy. Sometimes you can ruin a puppy by going into an enclosure with too many rabbits. So now if there's too many rabbits in an enclosure, and my puppy learns that if the rabbit changes direction, all he has to do is go forward 60 more yards and bump a new track from a new rabbit. I'm making that dog worse by making it too easy for it to solve a check. It never has to solve a check. It just has to find a new rabbit because your enclosure is so artificially dense in rabbit population that you can kind of make a dog worse because it learns that it can just keep going straight and hit a new line. Dude, that's that has some parallels to our world as well. That's does it? Great. Oh yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I the example I would give for our world is one of my dogs. We were duck hunting in flooded corn in South Dakota or South Carolina, excuse me, and we were shooting wood ducks like they were flies. I mean, they were everywhere, and. It was, you know, she'd go out for a retrieve. The duck would be swimming away. 
And, you know, all of a sudden another one falls right next to her because we're just shooting and she'd grab that one and now not remember that like she took the easy way, not the hard way of sticking with the first one. And it became a habit one season of I didn't find it right away. And you're going to shoot me another one. So she'll just kind of half ass the hunt. Um, You know, you want them to be successful on the initial thing they're going for that, that bird. That's, that's a good, really cool, cool deal. Um, Beagles for me have always been held like a special place in my heart. My dad's aunt has had beagles her whole life. And so growing up, we'd go visit her and they'd be her house pet. And, you know, I just always had this soft spot in my heart. And someday when maybe I slow down as a business, you know, I would love to get into this sport and get into um, competing in it and or just having you know, one or two beagles to take out when I'm not hunting ducks, right? What would, right. if you were, if you were to tell me where to go to find puppies, like, I don't want to just Google beagle puppies. I want to go get a badass. You know, how does someone research that and find the right breeder that's going to produce a rabbit finding machine yet also, you know, enjoyable to be around? Well, this is why, uh, I go to field trials. I mean, I enjoy going there and getting a ribbon or a trophy or something once in a while, but it's where I go to see what I want next. If I want to, you know, if I have a female, I want to breed, I want to see what dog I want to breed to. If I see some dogs running that I want to get a pup out of, I go there to see it. And so, you know, rather than, uh, just like you said, just sort of, throwing random darts at Google um, because there's a lot of scammers out there. Um, sure. And you, and you can pay too much and stuff. You know, I got a relative and he and his wife uh, bought a Beagle pup for a thousand dollars or something from, uh, you know, this Amish farm <laughs> and it came with pedigree and papers and it was a beagle and I eventually got him to show me the pedigree and jumping Jack flash is all through the pedigree. And I said, I personally know the guy that owns jumping Jack flash. I could have got you a pup with a similar pedigree for $200. (laughs) Right. You know, they bought it for a pet. They had no idea that it had a bunch of hunting blood in the background. So I would say get connected with somebody who is involved in beagles and watch dogs run and see what you want. And at least in the AKC world, that's pretty easy. You go to the AKC website, you find, uh, you know, the event search and, and you search for Beagle Field Trials and up comes the schedule of every Beagle Field Trial in the country. And the advantage of that isn't that you should drive around the country, but look for the Beagle Club close to you and go talk to guys and get some input and, you know. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, it's something I've always been intrigued by. I grouse hunted in Michigan with a college friend and his brother-in-law runs beagles. And I was just enamored talking to him about it. And I almost pulled the trigger on getting one. Um, 
because I, it's just such a fun activity to go out in the woods. It, to me, it reminds me a little bit of grouse hunting. I don't need decoys. I don't need my boat. I don't need to wake up at four in the morning. I can just grab the dog and grab a gun and take a hike. And I can go for two hours. I can go for an hour. I can go all day. Yep. Yeah. And I shoot a lot of birds. You know, once, you know, I don't start with a young dog shooting close to them, but once a dog gets, you know, used to the gun, you know, I can shoot birds that they flush just like a bird dog guy does. And I get, you know, woodcock, grouse when they used to exist around here, uh, pheasant. Um, in fact, I've, <laughs> I got a little dog now that, um, you know, she's only 10 inches tall, 14 pounds. Dang. And where they stalk pheasants, you get a lot of guys without dogs there. And they're, you know, shooting 12 gauge turkey loads or something. I don't know, but you know, they're shooting at these pheasants 50 yards away and flying and they go down and nobody finds them. You get all these flightless pheasants. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tails, tails are missing and they're just running around and this little dog will run them into a brush pile and bring them back to me. That's Um, so. In fact, I asked the game warden one day I was there, I said, you know, I got two, that's your daily limit. And that takes a $26 pheasant stamp now in Pennsylvania or 27. I said, and I didn't shoot either of these. I said, my dog ran them down. They were flightless. I said, what do I do if she brings me a third one? Yeah. You're only allowed two. He said, you're only allowed two. So I was like, so if she brings me a third one, I got to leave it here to, you know, if she didn't kill it already, which she sometimes kills them when she drags them back to me. If it's still living, I got to turn it loose to run to, you know, kind of feed the coyotes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be the same for us here with New York stocked pheasants. I mean, a lot of them don't fly very well and the dogs will catch it in the, the thick grass. And I, I've i been on several pheasant hunts where I didn't pull the trigger and I got my limit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happened. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, but I, I mean, I, I do well on woodcock, uh, and I even got, I've even, since they allow you to turkey hunt with dogs now in Pennsylvania in the fall, um, I've even gotten a couple of turkey where dogs, (laughs) dogs have gone down into the bottom, uh, you know, just pounding a rabbit and up comes a flock of turkeys running. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Probably not with the purest turkey hunter would want to hear or you know the guy that has a well-trained dog that will you know break up a flock of turkey and then sit in the camouflage cover and wait while the owner calls him back you know yeah but yeah when you send a, send a pack of beagles into the river bottom and when the turkey come up wait for a close one <laughs> hey man gobble gobble it all eats <laughs> bob how did you get into writing and and how did that journey begin and why, you know, you've wrote, I don't, I don't remember the number, but you've wrote plenty of books on beagles. How did that begin? Uh, I currently have 11 books. Um, one's a cookbook. Uh, nine are a series of short humor stories, which I mean, there's beagles in all of them, but they're not all necessarily outright actual hunting stories you know 
tell uh, a funny story about, you know, getting in trouble with my wife because I was hunting too late and I missed a dinner party or something like that, you know, to some kind of humor on that, you know. Um, yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I tell a lot. I tell a lot of humor stories that way, and and I never write a hunting story because to me they're all the same. They're all boring. It's we took the dogs out. We chased some rabbits. Some got away. We killed some. The end. Like, yeah, I don't want to tell that story. So, you know, I tell a lot of humor stories, and dogs are certainly in there. You know, I might, you know, have a story about stealing my wife's car to save gas mileage and the dogs get all the windows covered and no smudges or something like that. Or, uh, and I started writing 2001. Uh, you know, I always played around with writing humor and it's something I incorporate into sermons as a pastor as well. And in 2001, I sent a text or a fax I sent a fax of an article that I was just playing around with and wrote and thought it was funny. I uh, faxed it to Better Be going up in Vermont and asked them if they wanted to buy it. And they called me and said, can you send us one like this every month? I said, yeah. And it's just something I like to play around with, you know? So, um, so there's, so that started it. And then, at the highest point of one, and you know, this is why there's so many Beagle Tales books. At one point, I was writing three different articles a month for three different Beagle specific magazines. Wow. And the books are just basically collections of the short stories that I wrote for these magazines. And so there's nine of those in that Beagle Tales series. And then I just had come out here this uh, past December a new book uh, that I call Bramble Rambles. And it's, uh, of course, Bramble for being out in the brambles and rambles because these essays aren't exactly, uh, you know, totally, you know, academic in their structure and all of that. But, you know, when it's not hunting season and I'm out there getting dogs conditioned from March to October, I'll be out there letting dogs run and walk around listening to them. And I'll work on Sunday sermon or I'll think about, uh, you know, some sort of universal topic that we struggle with, or, you know, if uh, somebody at our church, you know, had somebody pass away and I'm thinking about grief. And so this latest book is a collection of rambles that I wrote while I was in the woods, listening to dogs that just are sort of, you know, faith-based conversation starters, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, wrestling with, you know, questions of faith and theology and scripture and, you know, when scripture contradicts itself and that sort of a thing. And their only connection to the dogs is it's the background noise that I like writing to best, whether it's the humor stories, whether it's a sermon or whether it's these little essays. It seems, <laughs> seems like a lot of the time when I'm doing any kind of thinking that has any importance at all. I'm doing it while I'm listening to dogs. That's really cool. That's really cool. Bob, I appreciate you jumping on here, telling your story and getting me even more excited about a future beagle. It's inevitable for me to, to want to get one. It just, I enjoy any dog that does its job 
does it well, and we get to spend time outdoors doing it with them. And and I do believe a beagle is in my future, my friend. And there's a bunch of beagle clubs and beagles in New York State. I'm not sure where you're at, but I know people up there to put you in contact with. <laughs> I, I think that's going to be uh, – so when do they start running these trials? They kind of run year-round, but not so much in hunting season. Right. Uh, March, I mean, we're going to be – starting trials by March, uh, you know, when the, you know, and some clubs do it before that, but there's going to be trials in March and it's every weekend, uh, in the Northeast. It's every weekend. If you want to go somewhere between Maine and Pennsylvania, um, it's every weekend somewhere, someplace from March through October, maybe even into November. That's awesome. I'm going to have to go check one out and report back to you, my friend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep, and there's plenty of places to check one out. And you know, if you feel it coming down to Pennsylvania, we got one in April at my club. Very cool. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you so much for joining. Again, it's Bob Ford. BeagleBard.com is where you can find all of his books. And where could they, they can probably reach out to you there if they'd like to learn more about Beagles trials and get in touch with you. Yeah, you can find my email there. You can send me an email there. And um, uh, of course, I sell signed books there, but they're all available on Amazon. My publisher makes that money, but I understand free shipping is free shipping. You can get any of those books at Amazon as well. Very cool. Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on a podcast. I appreciate you and good luck this trial season with your beagles. And it's still rabbit season, so I I hope you're having fun doing that too. Yeah, I still got to the end of February to rabbit hunt. So get after I'll be out. Get after him. Well, thank you so much, man. Have a great day. All right, man. Thanks. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.